0: Welcome to 100 Plus, where we're looking at the greatest people, events, and ideas in Christian history. In the last episode, Mike discussed the fall of Rome and offered a quick summary of the arch of Western civilization. In today's podcast, we pick up 125 years after Nicaea. The barbarians now control growing sections of the West, which hopes the East will come to their rescue. But they do not in part because the emperor there, a man named Theodosius, is trying to stay on top of a religious dispute, one that deals yet again with our understanding of Christ, and one that will be addressed in the topic today, the Council of Chalcedon. One of the best-known stories about Leo the Great, uh, the Bishop of Rome between 440 and 461 AD, and uh, the the title Bishop of Rome, as those of you who are Catholic likely know, is another term for Pope. Um, going to be a debate between Protestants and Catholics about when that term comes into its effect and when that is uh, that office. This, the Bishop of Rome is recognized as the Pope. There's obviously a big schism coming over that. but Pope Leo the Great, who was the first Pope to be called great, and there's lots of reasons to recognize him as being a really accomplished guy. But one of the stories that gets told about him most frequently is that in 452, he persuaded Attila the Hun, the the legendary warrior who was leading uh, not just the Huns, but other other nomadic barbarians to sort of go after Rome again. Rome has already fallen, um, but he's leading them to go sack and loot Rome and it is Leo the Great who goes out there and persuades uh, Attila the Hun to not uh, to not attack Rome. <clears throat> now it's not fair to limit my comments to um, Leo the Great to just his interaction with Attila. Uh, in fact, he shows up in our our account today because of his uh, work as a theologian. Uh, if I was going to do two hundred. Um, people instead of just 100, uh, I would include Leo the Great because he was a he was a doctor of the church. He was a theologian. He was a writer. He was a thinker. He's a, he was a diplomat. He seems to be a very able administrator. There's a lot of things that he does right, but he shows up in our story today because he writes a, a book, uh, a tome about Christ and his nature uh, that that becomes very influential at the Council of Chalcedon, also called Chalcedon. Uh, I say Chalcedon, I have absolutely no reason to know if I'm right or not, but um, that is our topic today. So the last uh, podcast was heavy on Western civilization, and uh, today's episode is going to take a deep dive into theology because we're discussing Jesus as the God-man. Uh, and the church's effort to figure out how to talk about who Christ is. So there are many things that make Jesus special, uh, many things he says and does that make him stand out, Uh, his claims, his miracles uh, are among them. But uh, today we're not focused on what he did or what he said, we're focused on who he is, because it's at that nature, or excuse me, it's at that level, at the level of his nature, or as you will see, at the level of his natures, that uh, he is so altogether different than you and, and me. Uh, once we understand this, like once we understand who Jesus is, that he is, he is fully God and fully man, that he is eternal, present. We're, we're uh, immortal. Like we're going to live on forever, but we had a beginning. Jesus is eternal. He goes backwards from before time began and forward out to beyond time. And uh, so he was present at creation. Everything that was created was created through him. He's, he's, he's He is different than we are. Once you understand who Jesus is, then you know the idea that he could walk on water or um, raise the dead or perform miracles, give sight to the blind. The, the, that's sort of chump change uh, because you you've wrestled with this bigger topic. And so that's that bigger topic today. We've been all these councils and all these early years really focus on, uh, Christ, they're not focusing, they're focusing on God, but they're more specifically focusing on Jesus. And uh, so we're focused on Jesus, not his deity so much today as it is his humanity and the fact that he he is going to be fully God and fully man at the same time. And this is what uh, gets worked out. How to talk about this is what is discussed at the Council of Chalcedon which is the fourth of the seven great ecumenical councils. And, um, and just by way of review, I'm sure you remember all this, but the first council was in Nicaea. This was called by Constantinople, 325. And the bishops there, the leaders of the church, uh, established that Arius was wrong, that Arianism, this idea that Jesus was somehow less than God the Father. He was he was uh, not completely God. He was uh, God with a small g. He was the vice president of heaven. He was he was something less than fully equal to God the Father. That's where Arianism gets gets uh, put down. Second Council is the Council of Constantinople. And the leaders here affirm the work of Nicaea. And they push back again on, this time it's semi arianism So after Arius goes away, his followers sort of modify his thinking a little bit. And they take a step towards orthodoxy. And they come forward with what we call uh, semi arianism And they try to, to get in. And at the Council of Constantinople, um, which also is where a creed, the Nicene Creed, is actually going to be sort of f- Finalized finalize the creed that we say. At the Council of Nicaea, they came up with the Creed of Nicaea. And so at the Council of Constantinople-Nicaea, they come up with the Nicene Creed, which is what we're familiar with. And this is where Athanasius pushes back and says, no, a half step back towards orthodoxy is not enough. We have to have the nature of Jesus locked in. And you cannot say that Jesus is just somehow not completely 100% God. The third council is a council at Ephesus, and I'm going to largely skip over it because not anything of any lasting substance happens here. Um, There's a run here in which uh, there's just a bunch of meetings. Some of them are official. Some of them are not. Uh, When I was at seminary uh, back in the 80s, I used to watch the Chicago news because there were fistfights. Harold Washington was the mayor. And uh, Fast Eddie had pulled a fast move on Washington and appointed his cabinet, uh, appointed Washington's cabinet. There were fistfights often at the Chicago City Council meetings. And, uh, you know, so that's a lot of like what was happening back around the time of the third council, the Council of Ephesus. And nothing of any lasting significance happens there. Today, we are going to the fourth council, which was held in Chalcedon, which is this uh, small town. Not far from Constantinople, and and they gather in 451 and they affirm that Jesus is not just fully God, but that he is fully man. So he's not half God and half man. He's not a God who looks like a man, but really isn't. He's not a man who acted like God. He's not a God who becomes a man and stops being fully God, but he is fully God and fully man. This is a staggering concept, and I think many Christ followers do not appreciate that the dual nature of Christ is a mystery every bit as profound as the Trinity. So the Trinity claims that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The hypostatic union, which is how we refer to Christ's dual natures, says that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is one person in two natures? So the Trinity says there's one God in three persons. The hypostatic union says there is one, uh, there is one person with two natures, and uh, this is this is a mystery. And by mystery, I'm not giving a shout out to Agatha Christie. Uh, a theological mystery is a truth too profound for us to comprehend. Uh, this is one of those times that theologians end up um, making the Latin statement, uh, finitum non capex infinity, which means the finite, you and I, cannot comprehend the infinite God. We are not able to fully grasp God's nature, which shouldn't be actually that surprising. Um, So I want to be clear that just because we can't fully grasp God doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue knowing everything about God that we can, and not just knowing about him, but knowing him. And I also want to say, when we say these things are mysterious, they're beyond us. We're not saying that they're nonsensical. It would be nonsensical. It would be irrational to say there is one God and three gods at the same time. Or Jesus has one nature and is two natures at the same time. That's not what we're saying. We say, we say that, that God is one God and three persons, and we say that Jesus is one person with two natures. So, it's mind-bending, it blows some categories, uh, there's a mystery here, but it's not nonsense. So, uh, let me note here, most people have very little appreciation of the nature of Christ in general, or the incarnation in particular, which comes into focus here. In, in the Life of Christ book that I wrote 10 years ago, I opened chapter 2 with the following. And I I think of this often because I can see the light go on as people read this, and they're like, I did not ever really get this before. So I open chapter 2 by saying, it's usually best to start at the beginning. Unfortunately, when it comes to Jesus, few back up far enough to do that. It's an honest mistake. After all, most people equate his beginning with his birth, and they know the story of his birth quite well. It's hard not to. Every December, the second chapter of Luke turns up everywhere, including the Charlie Brown Christmas special, where Linus quotes it at length. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So, but I'm still reading. But Christ's story does not begin with his birth. It begins long before that. And if we have any hope of understanding who he is, we need to read his story in its full context. That requires beginning before time began and proceeding forward from there. End of quote. So let me repeat the historic Christian claim here Jesus is eternal. He existed from before time began as God. At the incarnation, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, he added humanity to deity. That is, while remaining fully God, he became fully man. The Bible talks about this most spe- specifically <laughs> in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 and following. It's this great hymn of the faith. Uh, in which we read that the that Christ, though equal with God, fully God, equal in of the same uh, essence as God the Father, though Christ equal with God, he did not regard equality with God something to be held on to. In obedience to the Father and on our behalf, he emptied himself. The Greek word here for emptied is kenosis. And this is a famous passage. And translators struggle to to capture what it is that Jesus empties of uh, himself of. Uh, the NIV says that uh, he made himself nothing. We, we have in hymns where we talk about the fact that he veiled his glory. We're, we're struggling to be able to understand how he becomes less through addition, but that is what happens. He adds humanity to deity, and in the process, he steps down the ladder. He humbles himself somehow his divine glory is going to be masked by his humanity. Not at the transfiguration, right? He will sort of unmask briefly, but uh, he is going to voluntarily restrict use of certain divine powers and prerogatives while on earth. It gets really easy here to uh, get in trouble by saying something that is wrong and heretical. I don't want to do that. I tend to think that somehow Jesus, for a period, set some of his divine uh, qualities in a blind trust. At no point in doing this does he ever cease to be God. He is fully God. Um, But while being fully God, he takes on flesh. And he becomes, it's not just that he's got a shell, a human shell, but he becomes fully human and he will do so forever. Jesus today still is fully God and fully human, seated at the right hand of God the Father, as a person, and your and my High Priest. So, uh, as you can see, this is complicated stuff. Um, so it might not surprise you to hear that the Church struggled for quite some time to sort of lock in the language to know how to talk about this, and what they're going to come up with at the definition, the Chalcedonian definition. It doesn't get called a creed. It's it's a It is established at the Council of Chalcedon. It gets added on, in a sense, to the Nicene Creed. Uh, But this definition is going to uh, help us know how not to talk about Jesus. It doesn't actually help us know what to say about him, but it it prevents us from saying the wrong thing. So uh, these discussions about Christ's nature go on for a couple hundred years And um, they are going to remain um, prominent in the church even after the uh, Council of Chalcedon. But most of the work that gets done at Chalcedon uh, is pivotal to everything that follows. So, at the 30,000 foot level, there are four things that could have been decided at Chalcedon. they, They could have decided that Jesus had two separate natures that he was really two people or they could have said that he was uh, a unified person that he had uh, just one he was just one person or they could have said that he had a, a mixed nature in one person <laughs> somehow they're going to come out and they're going to go with a very complex formulation to say that he is again one person with two natures so we've already talked about the story uh, the you know starting with the burning of Rome and the fall of Jerusalem and then we looked at these uh, anatnesian things and then at the council of nicaea and then we 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 took ourselves up through the council of constantinople in the post nicene period we went up through the council of constantinople and you may remember that it ended uh, as it was, they, they were locking down some things and locking down their creed, but there's always some other things that get talked about at these councils. And at the end of the council of Constantinople, there was this guy named Apollinarius who took a, who took a pass at trying to explain how Jesus was human. They've established now that Jesus is completely God. And so Apollinarius took this uh, stab, a rather weak stab. He was not up to the task, Um he took a weak stab at trying to uh, explain how Jesus could be fully God and fully man. And uh, everybody said, no, Apollinarius, that is wrong. And then they went home. And as they, after they get home, uh, two schools of thought are going to emerge. Uh, one is going to be associated with the church in Antioch. And if you've read the book of Acts, you'll remember the church of Antioch. This is the church that sends Paul and Barnabas out on the first missionary trip. So, um, those in this camp wanted to protect Christ's deity and his humanity. They wanted to be sure that, that it's not compromised in any way, that they don't commingle. mingle that, that they don't get mixed up. And the way they do this is they keep them as far apart as possible. So, the Antiochians were afraid that if they that if the Two natures of Christ got close, they would blend, and then Christ's human limitations would come to be placed on his deity, and his divine attributes would come to be placed on his humanity, uh, in which case uh, he's not fully God and he's not fully human. The other school of thought uh, is going to be the Alexandrian school. So you got the Antioch uh, Christians, you got the Alexandrian Christians, and the Alexandrian Christians are going to go the opposite direction. They're worried that if you if you think like the Antiochians, you've got it so separated. You actually don't have one person; you have two people, and so they're going to have the the human and the divine natures of Christ very close, and they're going to have them so close that uh, that they're going to they're going to Mingle, or and you're going to come up with uh, with one person with just one nature, and uh, the big name here is a guy by the name of Eutychus, um, who lapses into Apollinarianism, the same kind of mistake that Apollinarius had made at the at the end of the Council of Constantinople. It's almost a Docetism. So Docetism says that that uh, that. Jesus is never really a person. He just, it just looks like he's a person, but he has this docetic, the, the extreme form of docetism would be Gnosticism, and this is what John writes against. The Gnostics didn't think that uh, Jesus had a physical body, heavily influenced by by Greek thinking, Platoism in particular. So... Um, so, uh, what, what Eutychus is going to say is that Jesus' humanity is overwhelmed by his divinity. And, and the phrase that he uses that really sets off the people in Antioch is, uh, and sort of a famous phrase, is he's going to say that his humanity was reduced to, quote, a drop of wine in the ocean of his deity. So, this leads people to ask, if he's not really human, then how does he go to the cross in our place? All of these conversations are taking place against the backdrop of our salvation. This is this is why people are struggling with understanding who who Jesus is. If he's not fully God, then they don't believe he can save us. But if he's not fully man, they don't believe that he can represent us. And so this is what uh, leads to these conversations. So a lot of scuffling is going to take place over the course of a few hundred years. And again, it it this this is not a not the this is not what you want to lead with. Um, one of the big rows comes when an Antiochian by the name of Nestorius, uh, who happens to be a, a preacher who becomes friends with Theodosius. Again, all of these names will be on the quiz. Uh, so Theodosius is the, is the emperor, and, uh, and he likes... Nestorius, and so he gives Nestorius really the, the plum job uh, in the church world in the East. That is, that he's the patriarch of Constantinople, which is sort of like being the bishop of Rome, and these guys are going to eventually uh, have a dust up. But uh, he says to Nestorius, You are the patriarch of Rome. And so Nestorius, one Christmas morning, <laughs> this is Christmas morning, he preaches a sermon. And on this uh, this Christmas morning, he announces that you can no longer say that Mary is the Theotokos, the mother of God. Now, um, Nestorius was not actually saying so much about Mary at this point as what he was saying about Jesus. He's making the point that you have to make a distinction between uh, Jesus, the son of Mary, and Jesus, the son of God. So he's, he is separating these two so, so far that you don't have one person with two natures. It's sort of like you have two people. And uh, this statement is going to cause, this sermon is going to cause all kinds of problems. Makes me feel good. I've preached some sermons that have caused problems, but nothing like Nestorius. So, uh, first of all, there's all kinds of people who are upset because, I mean, this just doesn't work theologically. If if Mary is not giving birth to the Son of God, she's just giving birth to a human son who is going to be indwelt by the Son of God, you could say, well, then all Jesus is, is is an example for us. Because if you come to faith, we talk about we get indwelt by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of Christ. We're fully human, but indwelt by the Spirit of God. How are we different from Jesus? Um, and of course, it also is going to set off a, a, a very bitter row with, uh, with the Western church, which is not going to like this kind of talk at all. Saying that, that Mary is not the mother of God is, um, it doesn't go well. And so he, Nestorius, is going to get, um, is going to get called out by this guy, Cyril. And Cyril is going to go to the Pope and say, hey, Nestorius, so and again, the Pope is sort of on the western half of the empire. And Cyril goes to running to the Pope and he says, This guy Nestorius is trouble, and, and Pope says, Deal with it. So Cyril goes uh, to see Nestorius and, and and essentially says, You're excommunicated. So he's the he's the patriarch of Constantinople. And Cyril says you're excommunicated. And Nestorius says, Oh, you cannot say that. So he runs to Theodosius. His you know, his uh, sponsor here, the emperor, and Theodosius says, okay, well, what do you want to do? And he says, well, let's have a council. So they call this council. We have this, now we're going to have this series of, of gatherings. So he calls a council, and Nestorius shows up, and Cyril shows up, and Cyril shows up with all of his support, but Nestorius's people, his bishops, are late. And so you got some uh, Robert Rules of Order minute in minutes in which, uh, moments in which Cyril actually is able to open the meeting before any of Nestorius's people are there. And he condemns Nestorius and then they leave. Well, then Nestorius's people show up and they're furious that they, you know, that Nestorius has been excommunicated from the church. And so they, they pitch a fit. They convene a meeting without anybody, without anybody from the West there. And they uh, excommunicate Cyril. And they excommunicate all the people that had excommunicated Nestorius, and this is going to go back and forth. And, and um, so people aren't recognizing each other's meetings, and then more meetings are called, and there are some fist fights. There's a robber council that gets called where they actually, one side brings some muscle to beat up the other side. Again, this is not, um, this is not the best moments of church history. Eventually, in the midst of all this, uh, Theodosius. The, the emperor dies. And a new emperor, uh, Marcion, is is alive. And so Marcion says, look, let's just draw a line in the sand here and say all this stuff that has been going on for the last number of years, including the Council of Ephesus, which I have, again, skipped over, let's, uh, let's do a retake. And so they gather in 451 in Chalcedon, and they iron things out. And uh, this time... Uh, Eutychus and the extreme Alexandrians were defeated, and the the council sort of skillfully weaves together uh, this idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So I'm going to read to you the definition that they come up with. Again, they don't call it a, a creed, but it's sort of added on. So the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople are protecting the full deity of Jesus. The Chalcedonian definition is is affirming the full humanity of Jesus. And I'm going to read this. It's two paragraphs. Written in 451. So, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man of a rational soul and a body, of one essence with the Father as with regards to His divinity, and the same of one essence with us as regards to His humanity, like us in all respects except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards His divinity, and in the last days for us as for our salvation, the same born of Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards His humanity. He is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures. And then we get this very famous language here. Uh, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, and no separation. So they're not, we're not able to define, to describe how, how Jesus can be one person in two natures. But we know that as you talk about these two natures, his deity and his humanity, There's no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the creeds of the fathers handed it down to us. So, let me try and pull some things together here as we move towards the close. And note that there are uh, more than a half dozen mistakes we can make when it comes with Christ. If we're looking at the early church, uh, There are some historic ways we get Jesus wrong. Number one, unbelief. The first people to misunderstand Christ were those who put him to death. They believed that he was only a man and not God. And so when he claimed to be God, they executed him for blasphemy. Secondly, the docetists. The second group that gets it wrong makes the opposite mistake. They affirmed that Jesus was God, but they did not believe that he was man. This is called docetism, and the docetists claimed that that Jesus only looked like, it only looked like he had a body. He really didn't. He was a spirit, a phantom. This is, among the early docetists were the Gnostics, and John writes against the Gnostics. The, The apostle John writes against the Gnostics in his first letter, not in the gospel, but in his first letter, he opens that letter. (laughs) He goes right after the docetists. Uh, He opens that letter condemning anyone who denied that Christ was a real man, stating that he was writing about things that, quote, I saw with my own eyes, I heard with my own ears, I touched with my own hands. He's not a ghost, right? In other words, Jesus was a man. A third mistake comes along 200 years later when Paul of Samosota suggested that Jesus was not born God, rather he was born human, but he was so good that at some point, most likely at his baptism, he was adopted into the Godhead. The fourth mistake is modalism, which is often called sabellianism, often called that. You've heard it called that many times, I'm sure. Uh, after a third century Roman named Sibelius who was teaching it, he taught that Jesus was God, but that he was not distinct from the Father. This is an anti-Trinitarian view of Christ that says one God existed as Father until he became until he became the Son, who later became the Spirit. So we see some of this existing from time to time. There will be charges made against certain Christians, that they are modalists, that they're not Trinitarians. The fifth big mistake, uh, and it was a really big one, is is Arianism. Again, this was maybe one of the biggest challenges the church ever faced. This was the claim that Jesus was God-like, but not fully God, not fully equal to God the Father. This is what was condemned uh, at the Council of Nicaea. Um, the Sixth mistake is monophytism. This is where we get into challenges around the nature or the natures of Christ. How exactly his humanity and deity are pulled together. And again, so Apollinarius is uh, is the 4th century bishop of Laodicea who gets in trouble at the Council of Constantinople uh, in which he teaches that Jesus had a human body but not a human mind or a human spirit. And so the union of God and man comes together. He only has one nature. And uh, it's actually sort of a hybrid nature of the two. Uh, Some call this the God and the Bod theory. Um, It was also uh, Apollinarianism or Monophytism and Eutychism that all go together. Um, Nestorianism is the next mistake. This is mistake number seven, and it's the view advanced by this Syrian monk named Nestorius, who's friends with Theodosius. And his trouble is for suggesting that Jesus was fully God and fully man, but not one person. So, um, again, this, this has been a, a focus heavy on theology, but, it's, but this the, the Chalcedonian definition, the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man, is one you need to hold on to. So let me circle back and end by this great passage, this hymn of the early church, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. In your relationship with one another, have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he did that for you. In the next podcast, we will consider my one of my favorite Saints, one of my favorite um, church history characters, St. Patrick.